This episode brought to you by LawPay. At LawPay, we're the best in legal payments for a reason. Learn more at lawpay.com ABA. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed, what that means for those in the practice areas. On today's show, we're discussing the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was signed into law on July 26, 1990. My guests are two lawyers who both represent plaintiffs in ADA lawsuits. One is Eve Hill, a Washington, D.C. lawyer. She served as a deputy assistant attorney general of the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division during the Obama administration. And while she was there, she was responsible for oversight of the division's disability rights, education, and Title IV enforcement. My other guest is Jason Turkish. He's a Michigan lawyer who has been legally blind since birth. Also, he was lead counsel in a settlement with the Law School Admissions Council, was led to changing the way blind law school applicants are tested, and the elimination of the test logics games section. Welcome to the show, Jason and Eve. Thanks so much for having us, Stephanie. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yes, of course. Eve, you started practicing law in 1989, and a few years later, uh, you started doing ADA law when it was right around the time it started to be enforced. Can you just kind of tell me what was your job then and what was it like then to be practicing um, in that area? Sure. I uh, joined the disability rights section of the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department. Um, in 1995, I think. So about four years or so after after the ADA was passed. And I joined that to, um, to start their ADA mediation program because the ADA is really sort of flexible. It, it, it's individualized, the terms are reasonable and fundamental and that kind of thing. So it works well in mediation. So we created that program. I also did the building code certification program where I know negotiated with state and local building code entities about making their building codes line up with the ADA's building requirements. And then we did a lot of technical assistance, figuring out what the law meant for particular situations where people had questions. And I did a lot of those. Can you tell me briefly over the years, how for building code, how have uh, building owners' responses changed? If at all. Right. It's become a lot easier for building owners or at least for building new building owners because the ADA is now incorporated into most of the uniform building codes. And so it happens as a matter of course that a new building will be accessible. Owners have a lot more trouble doing their ongoing uh, barrier removal obligations. So since since 1993, every business building owner should have been removing barriers to accessibility. And many of them apparently didn't pay attention to that. And 30 something years out, they're going, wait, what do you mean? And we're going, well, you know, 30 years, you should have been doing this. Uh, that's kind of a lot you should have done by now. So you can do it now. Um, and then state and local governments haven't really often figured out how to make how to do things under their standard, which is program access for things like curb cuts and intersections and the things that happen everywhere. Uh, they haven't thought about how do I make my city accessible or how do I make my uh, civic center accessible. So they're they're a little late to the party. All right. And Jason, you were a young child just starting your school career 
when the ADA became law. I believe you were in preschool or maybe just a little bit older. Can you tell us a bit about a child who I'm guessing had an IEP plan when they were first introduced? What are some experiences you remember from that and your parents advocating for you and perhaps helping you advocate for yourself to the extent you can as a young child? Yeah, absolutely, Stephanie. It's it's interesting. Most lawyers probably, I would imagine, think of their first efforts in advocacy on behalf of a client. But for me, it was really on behalf of myself. So I very vividly remember a lot of those experiences um, in grade school and probably more particularly in middle school and high school, um, having to advocate for accommodations, particularly uh, as you know, you approach the college years, uh, standardized testing, which uh, poses its own set of challenges and has for the disability community for for decades now. Um, and ultimately, that really informed a lot of the work that I ultimately wanted to do as a disability rights lawyer. Well, and do you think I will add that your father is a lawyer, so you probably grew up just learning how to advocate for yourself. But I'm curious, even with those two things, was it still hard to get the schools to follow your IEP plans? Because I think some people would say it's still hard to get the schools to follow IEP plans today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can put anything you want into an IEP, but as as lawyers know, the a contract, if if you think of the IEP as a contract, and courts don't really think of it in those strict terms as a contract, but if you if you did, writing it on the page is one thing, making it come to life is another. And, um, you know, that dealt with things like attitudes and perspectives, and um, that's hard. Not every teacher feels the same way. Not every administrator has the same great attitude. Many, many do, thank goodness. Um, and some don't. And those were lots of opportunities to have to advocate and overcome adversity and have discussions, um, but also served as really great opportunities to explain an issue, to problem solve, to come up with alternatives, because that's what we're often called to do in disability rights work is is come up with some reasonable alternative. It might not always be the first thing that jumps to mind. Um, so those were th- those experiences were useful and helpful, although some were really frustrating at the time. Um, there's, you know, sometimes you just want to be able to compete on that standardized test and, and get into the best college or the best law school. Um, so having to overcome those obstacles um, was important work. I want to jump back to you mentioned problem solving, which I think that is a big piece of finding harmony for your child in school when they have an IEP. And I'm curious, do you, both of you have examples of that? Um, You know, you could send a demand letter, you could file a lawsuit, but sometimes that's not going to get you the best possible outcome as quickly as you can. And, you know, the client may not be able to put on a case. Can you guys give us a good example of problem solving with getting a school to enforce an IEP when they're not? That maybe parents may not think about if they're not lawyers. Yeah, well, my work has has mostly not been in the IDEA area, so I haven't done a lot of IEPs and special education work. I think mediation is one of the things that where I have had that experience, even under the ADA, where the parties can get together and figure out a solution, sort of sit on the same side of the table together and try to work it out instead of pointing at each other back and forth and accusing each other of things. I think that's right. And I think Congress intended for this to be a constructive dialogue. And there's 
things in the IDEA, like an exhaustion of administrative uh, remedies requirement that doesn't allow parents to go directly to federal court unless obviously making a very significant showing of futility um, that really are designed to bring parties together to remember that it's about the kid. It's not about the parents fighting with the school district or the school district fighting with the parents, but it's about what the what the student needs. And that would be my advice to uh, parents is, is remember the IEP meeting is, a, is one day of the school year. Your child is in the classroom with his, teacher, his or her teacher the rest of the year and um, working to create somewhat of a constructive dialogue is very, very important. That doesn't mean giving in. It doesn't mean not fighting for what your your student really, your child really needs, but it, it considers putting your child first always. I think that's really good advice. Um, let's switch uh, topics a tiny bit. Um, and I'm going to go back to, let's talk again about ADA compliance with businesses and institutions. I am curious now compared to maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, if you let a business or institution know that they're not in compliance, is there a good chance they'll do what they need to do? Or is it likely you might have to do more, like maybe a demand letter or maybe a lawsuit? And how is that changing over the years, if it is? It's a real mixed bag. I have my husband and I, he uses a wheelchair and we'll go out and I'll really nicely explain to them why this is inaccessible. And once in a while that leads to something and sometimes it just, they, they go, uh-huh, and, and move along um, and do nothing. And then demand letters, similarly, sometimes you'll send a demand letter and someone will get right back to you and say, whoa, I'm fixing it right now. I'll get, and I'll have you look at it and make sure it works out. Most of the time you get no response, absolutely no response, um, which makes it hard to know what to do next. How long do I give you to, to respond to this? So I've come to put deadlines on my demand letters. Um, so it's still really a mixed bag. And, and a lot of times, businesses will try and sort of turn the tables on your client. Say, well, your client's just after money, which by the way, the ADA mostly uh, for businesses doesn't, doesn't provide for money. So that is actually not what they're in it for. Or you, the lawyer, are a, a drive-by lawyer, which I am definitely not. And so you're just trying to get money. Um, so we get a lot of that sort of, uh, why are you demanding this of me? And you must be a bad person to be asking this of me. I think those reactions are all very true and common. I think the only additional one I might add to the list is when we're suing for programmatic changes, the one I like to hear a lot is, oh, you're just trying to get an unfair advantage, that somehow your request for an accommodation is really designed to um, you know, put you in a better position than what you would if you weren't disabled, which could not be farther from the truth. And so advocating for clients also means dealing with these sort of stereotypes and, and misconceptions and making sure that when it comes time, if necessary, to present to a court, that the message isn't isn't drowned out. And the other response we get a lot is, well, if I do this for this person, I have to do it with for everyone. And the answer to that is actually, no, you do not. <laughs> yes, I, I had that one an hour ago with a, a defendant. <laughs> Well, so I'm curious, surely you're getting this from the business owners and managers, not their lawyers. When their lawyers, when they finally get a lawyer, do they usually get them into shape or are the lawyers saying this too? Some, lawyer, some lawyers are quite good about educating their clients. Others just take their client's position and run with it. Huh. 
when I was researching this show, and this kind of made me sad, I, I was looking for like new cases with um, ADA law. And everything that showed up were TV news stories about someone who had sued over a parking space. And they call, I forget what they call them, serial lawsuits, but it was not taken seriously. And I was wondering if you guys wanted to weigh in on that, because my take has always been, well, if you don't want to get sued for not having the right size parking spot for people who are handicapped, then follow the law. And, and have the right size parking spot or whatever it is you need to be accessible. Because there's so many of those news stories now about those lawsuits. And either of you want to comment on that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't have an accessible parking space 30 some years after the law required you to have one, you really have you really have no excuse. This is paint, people. It is not expensive. It is not hard. You don't even have to hire an expert to do it. So at that point, I think businesses get very defensive because they don't have a defense. And at that point, they start to blame you, blame others, try and get there to be something else to look at here than the entity that just didn't bother to comply. You know, Stephanie, what I would add is, uh, although I don't do many parking cases like that, or really any in my career, what I would say is that everything might sound trivial until it's your problem. That parking space being the wrong size might not seem like a big deal until you're using a wheelchair lift that can't open out of the side of your vehicle because there's an embankment covered with snow and there's just not enough room to get out of your car. Um, the, these regulations were created with considerable input from design experts and, and they're there for a reason and it's been decades. So um, it, I think it's sad that they're cast in such a negative light as as almost of a nuisance because they're they're really, really meaningful. Being able to get out of your vehicle and go into a store or go into a drugstore and pick up a prescription or go to a doctor's office, those are important things. Yes, yes. And Eve, you also do um, discrimination work for plaintiffs involving areas of law with uh, GLBT issues. And I was curious, in your career, you've been able to watch both of these areas develop, but I wonder if you see any comparisons and how things have played out in both areas. I do see some comparisons in terms of the social reaction to both groups in that the the, the community reaction, the, the way we think about both groups has changed hugely over the past few decades. Just real big change in how we think about disability, how we think about people who are LGBTQI. And, and that has been really interesting and really heartening. There are still, in both cases, real throwbacks um, of people's attitudes that have apparently not moved. And, and that's terrifying, quite honestly. Uh, I think the, and the LGBTQI movement has had has had greater visibility than the disability movement, I think. And more people are are out about their identity in those communities. And a lot of people in the disability community still are not out about their disabilities. If they're invisible disabilities, people don't talk about them. They don't claim them with pride um, in the way that other identities get claimed. So I think we're still working on that. We're still working to find the pride in our own in our own selves and in our own identities. And I was curious. I, I feel like, especially for public companies, a lot. It, it seems like 
some companies will make a point of being welcoming, inclusive, and not discriminate against LGBTT, excuse me, LGBTQI folks. I, I'm not sure if we're there yet on companies wanting to be seen that way for people with disabilities as well. Do you have thoughts on that? It's starting to happen. So I do consulting and help companies uh, figure out both accessibility and DEI, basically diversity, equity, inclusion, that includes disability. It's very recent that we've started to talk about disability as part of our DEI efforts and as part of our desire to make our companies reflect our communities. So we, but we have to do it. And so uh, I think that's one thing where we're behind the times on, on how we think about disability. So we're starting to think about it in terms of accessibility a little late, um, but in thinking about it in terms of inclusion is an, as a whole another way of thinking about disability. And it's not just, okay, I'll do what I have to. It's more like, I really value what people with disabilities bring to me. Um, so that's what we're moving towards. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear about what you both think are some potential changes that the COVID-19 pandemic might bring for uh, ADA case law. We'll be right back. LawPay makes it easy to securely accept payments anytime from anywhere. Our proprietary technology prevents commingling of earned and unearned funds and protects your trust account against any third-party debiting, ensuring compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. Plus, LawPay is the only online payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program. Get started with LawPay today at lawpay.com ABA. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guests are Eve Hill and Jason Turkish, both of whom are lawyers who have law practices focused on ADA work. I've been curious, the pandemic has changed so much with school and work and just so many things and shopping, it is everything. Do you think we'll see some new case law around the ADA that comes out of the pandemic? Well, I kind of hope not, because one of the things we've learned during the pandemic is that you can do almost every job almost everywhere. You can do so many jobs from home. And that is something that people with disabilities have been asking for for a long time. That flexibility, the need, so you can avoid inaccessible transportation to get to work. So you can avoid inaccessible employment facilities. So you can avoid inaccessible technology at your workplace. So this has been something that many people with disabilities have needed for a long time. And now we know we can do it. So if we revert back to saying to people with disabilities, oh no, you can't work at home, I'll be extremely disappointed. Um, and, and I'll have some extremely strong cases, I must say, under the ADA. So I hope we don't have a lot of, uh, spend a lot of time fighting over things we already know we can do. And that's really my hope. We'll see. I, I'm always too optimistic. <laughs> Jason, what do you think? Well, I think we've already seen a lot of positive change for people with disabilities. And it's, it's hard to, you know, talk about a positive side to COVID where so many people have lost their lives. I've, I've had a family member who's died of COVID recently, but the reality is, is that for people with disabilities, this has been an opportunity, as you've mentioned, that 
probably would not have come for years, decades, or maybe ever to be able to demonstrate that um, that there is an opportunity to participate um, in ways that we didn't think were possible just a few years ago. Um, but it's not an open and shut issue that it's just going to continue to be available. Um, right now, I'm litigating a case in federal court in Michigan where a member of a public board who has a disability has been able to participate for the last two years via Zoom. Um, and now, beginning January 1, uh, our state has rescinded temporary authority that allowed him to be a member of that public board and participate and vote via Zoom and is requiring him to go back in person, something he physically can't do because his disability would require him to make a choice of either foregoing a mask so he can effectively communicate, but then putting himself at risk for COVID where he's also severely immune compromised and, and, and at increased risk. Um, so there are are going to be ongoing fights that that happen uh, during the pandemic. I had the privilege of co-counseling with Eve Hill to expand accessible absentee voting for people with disabilities in in Michigan, a, a cause she and carried on to other states, um, many other states, I think. So I worked with about a dozen states. I worked with them. Some of them got sued. Uh, some of them didn't get sued. Uh, depending on their reaction, but many, many states did not offer accessible absentee voting, absentee voting that was electronically submitted to the person with a disability so they could mark it on their computer using their assistive technology. They left too many blind people having to deal with a piece of paper that they could not read and had to get a third party to read to them, giving up their privacy of their vote, their independence to complete the vote. And so we we had a lot of preliminary injunction motions uh, during 2020 to get these systems, which exist, uh, into place in time for the 2020 general elections. And in most cases, the states eventually uh, adopted an accessible system. So we're, we're making progress. There are still some that don't have accessible systems, so the work will continue. We keep seeing, I don't think they've gone very far yet, but we keep seeing stories about people suing school districts regarding mask requirements. Do either of you want to, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I just sued the government of Virginia over exactly that issue. We're not the anti-mask people or the pro-mask people. We're, our, my clients are not insisting that everyone wear masks all the time forever. But right now in Virginia, for example, the transmission rate is high. That's the highest you can be of transmission rates. It's high everywhere in Virginia. And so the Virginia's executive order uh, it issued on, on our governor's very first day in office forbids schools from requiring students to wear masks. So they can't decide that one classroom that happens to have a child in it who will die if they get COVID has to be masked. They can't do what they need to do to accommodate students with disabilities. And as a result, my 12 clients have to make a choice of, do I send my, my child to school where he might catch COVID and die? Or do I keep my kid home where there is no virtual learning essentially this year in Virginia and it's very hard to get homeschooling. And if he's a special education student, he can't get his occupational and speech therapy. He has to give that up entirely. So that's a choice that no parent should have to face. And it certainly shouldn't have to face it when the school district is willing to do the right thing. It's merely an inconvenience 
to the other students, most of whom quite honestly are like, of course I'll wear a mask. Uh, and it's just a political issue. It's not acceptable. Do you have thoughts, Jason? My thoughts are that this shows how disability transcends everything. Transportation, education, healthcare, um, and really disability rights lawyers have to be extremely flexible. And I think the pandemic has called upon us to do that. And whether it was litigation on voting rights or issues involving masking, it's, it's certainly been an interesting time to be in this practice area. And we're about to have a whole bunch of new people with long COVID who need accommodations. And I fear that our employers and businesses and government agencies are not ready to, to consider those people as having a disability that needs to be accommodated. Oh, really? Wow. I wanted to ask both of you too, and not just in regards to COVID, but just since you've been in practice, how do you think the workplace for lawyers has changed for lawyers who have a disability? Or has it? I mean, my impression is there's a long ways to go. There's an awfully long ways to go. Um, law firms, in particular, still seem to believe you have to be a superman or superwoman in order to be a lawyer, and it is not true. Um, but they seem to believe that you have to be in great physical health and and completely articulate and able to. Uh, exercise all your senses, and they're very skeptical of anyone who has a disability. And it's it's really purely at the getting hired stage that this is a barrier. Most people with disabilities I know who become lawyers, once they get hired, they're great at it. They bring different, they bring a variety of skills. If you want a problem solver, hire a person with a disability. So it's not that the, the that the job of being a lawyer keeps out people with disabilities lawyers who are hiring keep out people with disabilities. Jason, what do you think? I agree completely. And I would just say that it's disappointing because we're at this inflection point where technology has never made it more possible for people with disabilities to practice law. You know, 30 years ago, the law library was a real challenge for somebody with a print related disability. That is sort of faded away. Who, who uses a law library? No, I'm, I'm I'm joking. We had, a, we had a beautiful law library at Northwestern, but I think most of us were there because it overlooked Lake Michigan, not because there were books in it. Um, you know, we're we're at this point where Westlaw and LexisNexis and appearing by court in court on Zoom and electronic texts make this so much more possible to bring individuals with disabilities into the profession, and and that's why I've felt really committed to working towards removing. The remaining barriers to the profession and there's there's still many to go but asking blind people to draw pictures and diagrams to demonstrate their ability to go to law school on the LSAT was just something that was completely unacceptable to me because like I just said we're now at this point where the ability to do the job as Eve just pointed out the ability to do the job they're not just able to do it they're able to be great at it so all the more reason to remove those barriers yeah plus you know when's the last time I drew a picture the reason I'm a lawyer is because I can't do math or art. <laughs> Jason, do you mind telling listeners our story about with the LSAT and how you transferred to Northwestern after your first year? Yeah, ab absolutely. So the LSAT has been a decades-long obstacle for individuals who are blind. And, and I, I don't want to say that 
totally universally. I'm sure there's a very gifted and talented blind person somewhere who can manage the logic games completely in their head and, and, and do great. And I, I don't want to diminish them, but for most blind people who I know, the call of the questions themselves, there was room in the test booklet specifically to draw diagrams to answer them. And it's how almost every commercially available prep test teaches people to answer those questions. If A, B, C, D, and E go into a bar and E is next to A and B is next to C and D must be two spaces over from A, where, where, where is F? Um, I, I just can't imagine how that is remotely related to the practice of law. It, it, it must be related to something. And in, in discovery, what we saw was it's slightly correlated to first year grades in law school, not second year grades, not third year grades, not bar pass rates, and certainly not what type of lawyer you're going to be. But yet that's how we were deciding who could go to law school in America. So we sued my client, Angelo Bino, who I'm really, really proud of and who I represented for almost a decade. Uh, first sued the American Bar Association, uh, challenging their accreditation rules that required the American law schools to use the LSAT because previously law schools were able to grant waivers until the ABA changed the rules in the late 90s and prevented that. Uh, that claim was not successful, but it led to a subsequent lawsuit against the Law School Admissions Council, uh, which we settled in 2019. And that's going to result in, let's see, in about two or about a year or two more. Uh, pandemic years seem to go at a different speed. Uh, it's going to result in the elimination of the current uh, logic game section of the LSAT, not just for blind and visually impaired individuals, but for everybody um, nationwide. And we're really excited to have a test that tests people on what it purports to test them on, which is their aptitude for the study of law and not, and not what Eve just said, which is the very skills that lead us to go to law school in the first place. For me, it's that I just can't do math. That's why, that's why I went to law school. But, but drawing pictures is not an easy one either. Well, and so you started at MSU Law, right, which is a very good law school, and you did so well there that you transferred to Northwestern your second year, and you graduated near the top of your class, correct? So MSU is a, is a great law school. I actually went to law school for a year in, in Florida at a school called... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 you're, 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 you're fine. It, uh, it, is, it is no problem at all. Um, I went to law school for a year in Florida. Um, I was fortunate to have a great experience there. Did really well. What um, school was that? That was Stetson, Stetson okay. University School of Law, um, which is an excellent school, particularly produ produces great trial lawyers. Um, had a great had a great year there. Um, was at the very top of my class. Had this incredible opportunity to transfer uh, to Northwestern and um, enjoyed my uh, my last two years in Chicago. And um, I'm really proud to have you know not that we're trying to settle a score or prove anything, but to to demonstrate that that test really wasn't predictive of. It wasn't predictive of my grades at Stetson, where I was at the very top of my class, and it wasn't predictive of my performance at Northwestern, where I graduated with honors or passed the bar exam on the first try. So I just hope that future attorneys with disabilities don't have to sort of go through all those hoops, that no matter where they want to go to law school, they can compete based on their, their aptitude and their ability, not on their inability to draw diagrams. I have the impression from speaking with more recent law school graduates or people in law school that there are still some law schools that have a ways to go 
in terms of uh, their accommodations for students. Would you agree? I would. I get a lot of calls, you know, having handled the Bino case and it, receiving a decent amount of publicity. And I'm, and I'm sure Eve, given the work she's done over the years, could attest to the same thing. You get, you get a lot of these phone calls where somebody who's panic-stricken, either because they're having a terrible time trying to apply to law school, or they're having a terrible time getting accommodations while in law school, or really struggling, to, you know, to be able to um, succeed on the bar exam. And you know, I was fortunate to attend not one but two law schools that had just an incredibly supportive attitude towards me, um, who really wanted me to excel and and do well, and had great academic experiences at both of them. Um, but I get calls all the time from law from students at law schools who. Just getting basic accommodations is a challenge. Professors making comments that would, if we're candidly, that type of snark was directed at any other minority group would be cause for immediate termination um, and, and a lot of hostility still towards students with disabilities. Um, and it's, it's shameful that our American law schools tolerate it um, and it needs to stop. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma around things like extra time for students with learning disabilities because there's this assumption that learning disabilities means you're not smart. It actually means the opposite. You are smart. You learn in a different way. So there's still a lot of um, prejudice among law professors about students who get extra time. And every time I face that, I'm sort of shocked. And then there's a lot of and more gateway issues. There's a lot of law schools who haven't thought about the accessibility of their technology. So law schools are starting to move away from paper and pen uh, tests, which is a great opportunity for people who are blind, for example, and have print disabilities, unless they don't buy accessible uh, electronic tests in which case it's just as bad as having the old paper and pen test. So over and over again, schools are not thinking about that when they make their purchases and they're not asking their vendor and they're not telling their vendor it has to be accessible. And we're ending up with students who are unable to take the test in the same way their peers do, have to go through a lot of rigmarole and take it in, in a way that doesn't really meet their needs. Do you guys find that there's many law school professors or administrators who are people with disabilities? No, I, I think the ABA has done a good job generally surveying how poorly the legal community reflects numbers for individuals with disabilities that we sort of systematically lag what would be considered any reasonable percentage based on what we know the incidence rates are in, in the general population. So, um, Law schools over the last several decades have made incredible strides towards diversity in a, in a lot of areas, in gender and race, um, to name two. Um, disability is, is not yet made it to the top of the list. I, I have hope that it, that it will, um, because it is an, an, an opportunity to transcend all those issues. Disability transcends race and gender and ethnicity. Um, and it, so it's, it's a real opportunity to embrace a, a new definition of, of diversity. Uh, but it's going to take some changing attitudes among law school administrators. Um, it's going to take changing the perception of what a lawyer is. Um, I think Eve painted a great picture a, a few minutes ago talking about law firms having this sort of 
superhero mentality that uh, that a lawyer must you know act a certain way at at, at all times. Um, lawyers do many different things. There are lawyers who spend their days in courtrooms, and there are lawyers who never go to court, and uh, and everything in between, by the way. And um, there's a lot of opportunity for people with disabilities in the legal profession, um, but we have some we have some institutional barriers that need to be removed um, in order to accomplish that full potential. And it's not just the the LSAT or law school administrators. It's uh, boards of bar examiners at, at the state bar. You know, we've seen terrible cases where somebody is finally able to, you know, get through law school, even quite successfully get through law school, and then not be offered the very same accommodations for the bar exam, which is already one of the most stressful moments in somebody's life that they had been given throughout their their legal education and that type of behavior when you think about what a what a board of bar examiners is in most states most jurisdictions that's the court that's a state's highest court that's a state supreme court whose job it is to admit qualified people to the bar and they're exerting their discretion by not allowing somebody with a disability who's made it through law school successfully uh, to be successful on their state bar exam that's proof to me that we still have a ways to go. Yes, people with disabilities are way underrepresented in the in the law profession, but I think a big part of that is that people with disabilities who are members of the bar or members of law schools aren't going to tell you that they have a disability, especially if they have a mental health disability, which will get you in most states extra scrutiny by the bar. Uh, and, and possibly conditions on your license or possibly revocation of your license simply for having a mental health condition, no matter how fully treated it is. And so people, are, there's a huge amount of prejudice against certain disabilities in the law profession, and that prevents people from talking about who they are. Yeah. And that's everything I had to ask you both today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation. It, it really has. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be with you. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.